Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 3rd, 2024. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And filling in this week for Tim Shifflett, welcome back to the show, Kathy Fredrickson. Thank you so much. Glad to be here from teeny tiny little Adrian, Georgia. Yes, and in case anybody's wondering, Tim is a bit under the weather. I don't think I'm violating HIPAA regulations saying, you know, this is not a planned absence um, because we know that he would want to be here for our guest coming in for like the third or fourth time now. Just legendary political analyst Bill Snyder is going to be on the show with us here in about 20 minutes. Uh, He's got a new project. We're going to ask him about that, and then we're going to just – sit at the tree of political wisdom um, that is, you know, his entity. But until then, we're going to discuss some other issues, and we're going to start off with, I guess it was Wednesday, the Supreme Court handed out a really, not a big decision like that she ruled on the case, but a saying that they were taking up a case and they're pausing um, any more action on um, at least one of Donald Trump's um, legal proceedings facing him um, and this past week, and this is obviously not without controversy, this move. Um, Catherine, what was your thoughts when you see this came to come down? Very disappointed in the Supreme Court. I feel like they're p- putting their thumb on the scale for the election. Um, it's, it's just a, a big disappointment, both that they're hearing the case and – that because of that, if we face all these delays in in finalizing his, you know, and going to court and getting this underway and hope, as we all hope, out of the way by the election in November. But that seems unlikely at this point. Yes. Um, Kathy, kind of same thing there. Um, they came up with this ruling. Um, it, it got just a ton of attention for at least a day in the cycle, and then there was more some long view pieces written after that. Uh, What was your take on that uh, decision by the Supreme Court? I'm a little concerned with how this is being drawn out. We are, you know, getting ready to head into election season. It technically started with qualifying next week, and I'm just, I'm really concerned with how the optics of this will benefit the Trump base because, you know, they're like, they're going to assume that they, there's not really anything, any meat to this because they're letting it drag on and on and on instead of trying to actually get this prosecuted before they could actually get him to on the ballot everywhere. So, you know, I was really hoping for that March 4th trial date. And of course, you know, that's been thrown out the window and this is, really alarming in in my opinion. Yeah, I guess there's kind of two thresholds here. 
and one is is far more concerning uh, than the other is you know they're going to look at the you know the the um, question is a president essentially or in this case I guess an ex president and some of the things he did was before he was president but is someone that's been involved with the presidency let's say um, are they above the law um, and if you kind of just study you know American civics. And us being a democracy and all men are created equal, and when they said it, they probably did mean white men, but now we interpret that to mean all people, all Americans uh, are created equal, then no one is above the law. And so kind of – I mean at least I am kind of leery of how they could decide that. Now, of course, I guess there's another situation. Is this you know, case or are these cases – um, something that, you know, should be decided. Are they political? Uh, I guess that's another question, although at that point, once again, going back to the Constitution, jury of your peers, you let the legal proceedings work out, and if the legal proceedings are above board, then they will rule in the correct manner. If you trust the process, trust the Constitution, which you would think nine of the you know, theoretically most accomplished legal scholars in our nation would respect more than just us three non-legal scholars, right, Catherine? Yeah, um, yes, you would think that. (laughs) But, I mean, this is not the first time that we've been surprised by rulings by the Supreme Court. And, of course, we haven't had a ruling yet. We've just had a, you know, sort of an alert. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, your argument could be used on the other side too by saying, you know, he's deserves his day, day in court, and now he's going to get it. I'm not uh, agreeing with that, but I think that that's what some people would say. So yeah, uh, I mean, he... I, I, it's a big disappointment. Um, that I, I think the biggest concern, like Kathy said, is the delays because they. Um, they sort of like like she said they make people think oh well that must not be a big deal if they're delaying it and it just puts off you know uh, campaigning it's, it's just it makes everything much more difficult and tricky as we move into the real heat of the um, campaign season And I think one of the things that you're doing is you're assuming that these people are going to follow the rule of law and be abiding of any ruling from any court when we have seen that that is not the case. And, you know, it's just there's a book by Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise, and everyone now is an expert. We have the Internet. We have social media. We have YouTube. We have our own platforms and our own echo chambers. And no matter what the outcome and what the decision is going to be, I think my bigger concern is will folks be, will they actually listen to this? Will they believe it? Because I don't, in all honesty, I don't feel like these, uh, the MAGA hat-wearing folks are, are going to believe what any court lays down unless it's in their favor. 
Yeah, do your own research, if you will. Um, well, this is a kind of a question I have about the process of the Supreme Court, and I feel like I should know this. I guess I need to become my own expert on this. But when the Supreme Court decides to take up a decision, does it, A, have to be a majority? Does the Chief Justice, in this case John Roberts, have a ton of say? Can one justice or, say, multiple or maybe a third of the justices say we want to bring this up? How does the process work to decide in this case, because this is not their usual, you know, what cases they're going to hear? Um, Does anyone know who was kind of the decision maker in this process? I do not know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And and once again, I didn't know either, so it's not like a pop quiz. Um, And so that's kind of the thing because, you know, they're – Ways in which I would feel better about this, like if all nine got together and they all said, well, you know, we all have to decide on that, I would trust that more. If I found out that, you know, even John Roberts, who is a Republican appointee, but he is the most moderate of the Republican appointees, I trust that a little more. But then if if you said, oh, well, just two of them had to get together and it was, say, Thomas and Alito – uh, that just pushed this after we found out about all the ethical issues surrounding Justice Thomas, you kind of start to go, hmm, I don't know. And so I, I think some transparency in this case would make Americans, and probably in this case Democratic-leaning Americans, at least feel a little bit better since the Supreme Court's um, you know, trust in the Supreme Court has dropped to really all-time low levels particularly on people from the middle to the left of the political spectrum. Maybe some of them don't care, but one would think that, you know, if you talk about this institution, you want all people or as many people as you can to have some trust in the institution. Right, Catherine? Uh, I'm not convinced that that's the case, that that they really care if there's trust in the institution. I'm not – I mean, these are lifetime positions. They're, they, I don't think they're necessarily concerned about how they're viewed. Yeah. I mean, one would hope. Well, well, Kathy, kind of a different question. Do you know – I know they're going to decide then pretty soon on if this can be um, – if, if the a person that's been involved with the presidency – I mean, I guess they could write it in some way where it just implied to Donald Trump, no one else, but you would think precedence would take hold. Um, but when will they decide this, and if they decide that, yes, cases can move forward, have you heard much about how the timeline has been impacted? Well, one of the uh, email subscriptions that I have is to SCOTUS blog, and I highly recommend people check it out if they get a chance. But one of the things that they were saying is that more than likely this case will be heard the week of April 22nd. This is going to be uh, the last week in which the court is going to be able to hear arguments for the 2023 term. And so if they do wait until that last week, Trump will have three weeks to file his opening brief. And then, of course, Jack Smith will only have uh, a little less than three weeks to file his response. So this is a very, very tight timeline How they rule on this, nobody knows because, you know, we could hear, even though they're hearing cases in April, it could be June before we hear anything. So 
um, again, the, this, this timeline and the, I feel the intention of the timeline is, is what they're working with. I feel like this is, this is politically motivated as far as the judges go, but I, I can't assume anything as much as I would love to assume positive intent. I'm not that kind of person in this case. Um, so who knows? This is, the timing is getting worse the longer it waits, the longer it goes on. Yes. Um, it will just be something we have to wait and see. But I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, but it's still related to this. I think Vox, uh, that's V-O-X, don't ask me why they named it that, because I always feel I have to differentiate in case anybody thinks I'm source, you know, citing Fox News as any kind of good source. But uh, Vox Media, they wrote this um, article saying that basically the courts were never going to save Americans from Donald Trump. The American voters were going to have to do that. And I kind of had that gut feeling all along because you see these polls where, you know, large masses of the, the um, you know, Trump base, the Republican base, said they'd vote for him anyway, even if he was convicted. And then you even see some of the ones that look like they're kind of on the fence. They're just looking for an excuse to come back because, in this case, politics trumps um, intent, you know, uh, or, um, you know, ethics, and, and no pun intended there. Um, Kathy, I know you saw the piece because I sent it to the – we're both congressional chairs. I sent the congressional chairs. Um, what was your thought on that piece, and, and is that sentiment correct? Well, the, the Texas polls are interesting because they are similarly aligned. I don't know if you guys saw the, the New York Times poll this morning that or that was released this morning that was uh, very – indicative that voters are concerned about Biden's age. And I think that that is, is a, uh, a false flag. And I'm very, I don't, I'm very hesitant to say that people are going to uh, ignore, well, let me rephrase this. They are very uh, quick to point out Biden's age when he's really not that, that different than Trump. And another issue that we're having with this is that um, this is <clears> – <throat> I don't believe the polling at all. There's, there's polling on both sides. You, depending on what you're looking at, whether it's the Times, whether it is um, and the Washington Post, any of these other, you know, 538, we've got a lot of different people out there who are putting information out that right at this point, you know, it's March. Um, we saw what polling did to Hillary. We've seen what it did to Bernie. And, uh, you know, back in Obama, they said Obama had no chance. And so I don't put a whole lot of, of weight into the polling at this point, at any point, to be honest, because where are they getting the information? Who are they polling? There's a lot of different variables, and it can sway in so many different directions. And I know I'm rambling on this, but this is a point of contention for me. Yeah, and we, we can talk about the polling later, including that Texas poll. I was uh, – because there's a whole lot of issues with that that polling um, But in, in recent days. But the, I was talking about that article about Vo, that Vox Media sent out saying that, you know, 
the courts were never going to be the ones to stop Trump. I mean, honestly, the Republican primary electorate should have been the one to stop Trump. I mean, when they did a poll and he was in the single digits, he would have known not to run in any normal circumstances, but that hasn't happened. He, they're not stopping him. And so it's kind of the, the point of the piece, Catherine, was to say the voters are going to have to be the one to reject him, make sure he gets a minority of votes, he's not reelected, and then hopefully that would move him on the, from the stage. We've got plenty of time to discuss 2028 um, but because we're too focused on 2024. But that was kind of the crux of the piece. It was, it was always up to the voters. Your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I'm, I, I always I, – I agree with that. I always agree with that. That's always my point. However, when you have media and now the courts putting their thumbs on the scales in certain ways, it makes it a lot harder for the voters to be informed and well-informed. I mean, you know, we hear all about Biden's age, but we, we, there's never any talk about his vitality. I mean, he's certainly in better shape than Trump as far as, you know, he rides his bike, he walks with his wife, you know, you see him all the time, and Trump can barely walk up on a stage. So I think that there's, it's not just age. We all know this. We all know people who are in their 60s who are vibrant and vital and, and people in their 80s and 90s who are still walking around. So I think that that's one thing. The other thing is that, I mean, I think that's a, a, informed voters are what make for good elections. And if we don't, if we aren't able to inform them, and now with these delays, it makes it that much harder because we can't really say, well, he's a convicted criminal because he's not going to be probably convicted in time to use that as a message. And I, I, it just feels like they're, I I always agree that the voters have the have the biggest responsibility and the biggest um, accountability. But if we keep seeing these polls that are so crazy, and like you said, we'll talk about that later. Keep seeing these polls, and then we don't get a chance to really hear about all the good things that Biden is doing because the echo chamber on in the media is all about you know. It's either all about Trump or all about, you know, Hunter Biden or the economy. And, I mean, the economy is in good shape for the most part. I mean, we have some inflationary problems. We have some um, some issues, but our employment is good. You know, jobs are being created. Um, and considering that we've come off, you know, what, almost four years of COVID, I mean, I think we have a lot to be – um, a, a lot to give Biden credit for, but we aren't. So, yeah. I well, mean, and, and you know, a, a, I'm sorry to interrupt, go but no, go ahead. This Karen. is this is where the, we're in the same position where we all maybe had a glimpse of hope that the impeachment proceedings would do the work for us, and then those didn't. And then it was the January 6th proceedings, and. Now, while that process is still ongoing, the truth of the matter is that absolutely, the voters are going to be the ones who have to, have to, you know, be the voice of reason. And 
So this is why it's so incredibly important that we as, as citizens, as neighbors, as mothers, daughters, sisters, brothers, make sure that people get out and vote because at the end of the day, while it still stands, democracy is hopefully going to be how we get through this. Yes, and because and I really think that um, it, it's misguided as some of these Republican voters are, obviously the ones that took part in the January 6th riots, um, at some point with roughly 40% of the voters overall kind of having these misguided uh, you know, views on how Donald Trump's treated and all, everything else, I don't. I mean, obviously, you know, he gets rejected to the ballot. There's still going to be some a animosity, b disbelief in some quarters of, of the results. But at some point, to get our country back to where we have two parties that agree to disagree agreeably, um, and we can just have elections again, like say, I guess all the way back at 1992, um, you know, in the '96 and in different years. Uh, pro- you know, probably until rather recently, maybe the Tea Party or something like that, uh, we're going to have to have, you know, people across the political spectrum respect the process. Um, and, and so I don't know that a ton of court cases, even though they may be absolutely right, and I have no problem uh, Donald Trump being held to the rule of law, um, I, I don't know that for our democracy that was going to be the linchpin. I mean, honestly, if he loses at the ballot box and then all of these court cases move forward and then justice is decided however it's decided, that could be best anyway because, um, you know, there's a chance he could get, you know, lose one, all of these cases and enough Republican voters show up, enough Democratic voters don't or just are disaffected in some way and just don't support him. And then you have a mess on your hands where, um, you know, uh, he gets elected. And then what would you do? So at some point, the, the winning the election in November, key component to moving on from the Donald Trump era. Correct, Catherine? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I don't think it's a um, – a given that he won't win in November, uh, but that's certainly what we all hope for. Yes, Kathy, your thoughts on, you know, what do we do to, you know, kind of move past the Trump era for once and for all in a way in which enough American citizens can accept it? Uh if I had that answer, I would. <laughs> I, I wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, we could solve voter apathy, <laughs> right? We could solve voter apathy. We could solve uh, hunger. We could solve people living under the poverty line. All kinds of different things. Um, you know, it was. If you remember back into the early days of the Trump uh, candidacy where he said that, you know, he loved Republican voters because they are so willing to vote against their own best interests. And now we are seeing that come to fruition. And, I, you know, there's, there's no 
amount of educating the voters on issues, on how things work, on how Medicaid expansion is helpful, SNAP benefits make sure that people aren't going hungry, the healthier people are, the more they come to work, which solves our employment issues. And they're just not, they're not connecting the dots, and you can't force that. The conversation that we should be having isn't going to be, you know, listen to how, how ridiculous you sound, but instead it's going to have to start at the grassroots efforts with our neighbors, with our family members who watch Fox. It's going to be with those kinds of people to hopefully not necessarily talk some reason into them, but to find the common ground and to use that common ground to show them that we're, hey, you know, the Democrats aren't the enemy. We are not uh, – you know, these, these groomers who are trying to invade your homes, brainwash your children, and until folks can understand that we have, uh, you know, the, the best of intents, the, you know, we want people to be full. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. And that <laughs> you aren't the enemy. We're, we're spinning our wheels. And I don't know how else to to put that into words. It's it's all about actions. So, uh, well, <laughs> this, there's no right answer. Definitely. Well, let's kind of pivot real quick and get into that uh, Texas poll, Cassie, that you had mentioned. I sent you all that one. Now, you know, we could spend a whole show, and we've discussed, and we'll discuss again how flawed some of the crosstabs underneath are in these polls. Um, for instance, that New York Times one you mentioned, um, and it had major issues compared to how, you know, Democratic voters – or voters, I should say, in general, have voted in recent elections. And I mean recent, like going back the last 20, 30 years. But that Texas poll actually, honestly, was quite promising, and I did not see all the crosstabs in it to know if the fundamentals of it were correct. But um, – it was a two-point race at both the presidential level, and it had the Senate race tied up. Um, and, you know, if Democrats are going to play offense, where do they expand the map at? Um, Texas and Florida are like the only two realistic opportunities, more realistic than probably holding the West Virginia seat that Joe Manchin holds. Um, so looking at that Texas poll from, I guess it was the University of Texas, Tyler, um, Kathy, what were your thoughts on that one? Well, there's my – some of the things about this poll get me really excited, and some of them are a little bit frustrating because of the different issues and the deep dive in which they, they did this, this poll, right? And, you know, when, when you're asking these folks, do you think things are headed in the right direction – only 36% of people said that they feel like the country is headed in the right direction. And of that, you know, uh, 35% were Democrats and 38% were Republicans. So looking at those numbers, that lets us know that both sides of the coin feel like we're moving in the wrong direction. How do we change this? How do we, how do we affect positive change? How, what, what is it? that is causing them to say this. And, you know, I know that my answer might be different than my husband's answer or my kid's answer because, you know, having kids who live in Texas, lesbian children who live in Texas, I don't understand 
a lot of the uh, the different well. Let me backtrack on this, and I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. That we, we have a lot of common ground, and it's just about finding that common ground and having these discussions. Because if, if both sides of the aisle feel like the country is moving in the wrong direction, how um, – or excuse me, moving in the right direction, only, only 38% or so, how do we get it to where the majority of us feel like we're moving in the right direction? What, what is it about – where we're going, that is good. What is it that's not so great? I want more information. This, this, this poll is great, but I don't feel like there's any action items there. And that's one of the problems with polling is that you can ask the questions all day long, but until you ask a question and get an answer that comes with a solution, I don't have a whole lot of value in it. But that's, you know, my perspective. Yes. Um, Catherine, you know, I, I know I sent you that poll the other day as well, and, and obviously the Senate seat was a part of it in addition to the second most populous state in America, Texas, being a huge electoral prize. Basically, the Republicans can't win the presidency without it. Um, you know, four years ago, I guess, uh, Georgia was showing some signs that it may flip. And, and I think part of it also, when they started to look at really putting money in Georgia, they were like, you know, there's not one but two Senate seats here. The only way to flip the Senate pretty much is um, – I guess there could have been other paths like Holden, Alabama. But the only you know, realistic way is to you know, win one, if not both, of these Senate seats. They put a ton of money in Georgia. Now Texas – is a way to expand the map as well as play an incredible offense, um, you know, in the presidential race. Now, Texas has kind of been out there before and kind of been a little bit of a, a fool's gold, if you will. But if this poll looks like with more polling and more focus groups and more, you know, information on the ground, if it does look like it's a, you know, two to four point race at the presidential level, the Senate seat with Ted Cruz is a toss-up in Colin Allred. Um, how enticing does that become for Democrats to make a play for Texas? Well, you know, we've been saying for a long time that uh, Texas could be the next, you know, purple moving to blue, or like I guess Nakima calls it periwinkle. Um, we've been talking about that for a long time. And as we know, these things take a long time. It takes a long time to, to, to uh, flip a state. So this might be our option. This might be our opportunity. Um, so we have to, you know, dig deep and do the best we can to inform the voters, make sure they're getting out to vote. Um, all, the, all the necessary uh, infrastructure is in place. I have no idea what the party – what the party's like in in Texas, you know, how strong they are. But, um, you know, I guess my, um, my sense is that we should be doing that all the time. Like we should, I mean, I know it's expensive and I know it's hard work, but we should be looking at every state, every, all the time to try to get Democrats out to vote and flip the state. Texas looks like a prime example, a prime opportunity this year 
So let's, you know, put really focus on that and see see how we can do. And not be um not, and and if we don't succeed, not not take our toys and go home, but just keep working. And I think that's one of the things that happens is that we don't succeed, and then we're like, oh well, we can't win that. Instead of saying, well, we did, you know, here's where we did well, here's where we didn't do well. Let's, you know, get back in there and work harder. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I, I, I take several things from it, and I, I want to talk about them, but I'm also going to let you all talk on some of my points. Um, one, you know, we've been told for about 10 years now that, like, ticket splitters don't exist, although we've seen in polling that is one of the few things I actually have taken from polling, that sometimes a Senate candidate, particularly a Democratic Senate candidate or a governor's candidate, runs a little better. Um, and so I start going, hmm. Uh, if that's the case, ticket splitters do exist, and we know they exist because Brian Kemp won Georgia more than um, – and then did much better than Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock won. But right now, I want to shift gears and welcome into the Kudzu Vine for, I believe, the fourth time uh, legendary political analyst, Mr. Bill Snyder. Welcome, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. Sorry I'm a bit late, but uh, I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I love Hey, we know how to- Yes, we know how that happens. But, hey, next week we get that time change, and, and it'll still be probably sunny all along the eastern seaboard. Well, um, I want to start off uh, uh, right off. I, I saw a special with Jed Taffer um, that's been on recently, uh, the scandals, the different political scandals. And I'm watching either the one on John Edwards or one on uh, Mark Sanford, and – who pops on from file footage from CNN explaining the anatomy of a scandal but yourself, uh, Bill Snyder? Um, I know this was not new footage. It was archive footage. But did they kind of tell you you were going to be a part of that special? No, but I worked for CNN for 21 years, so it's not a surprise. In fact, the very first story I covered on television was the Gary Hart scandal back in, what was that, 1986? Six eighty-seven, something like that. But I've covered a lot of them. Yes. Well, um, I, I just I saw that, and that was actually I think I recorded it after I'd even booked you for the show. But one reason I did want to book you is you've been writing for the Hill for a while now, but you just started your own Substack, um, and That's you right. sent me a message on LinkedIn. Tell us all about what you've got going on with Substack. Well, Substack is uh, a publication that publishes authors on just about any subject. Um, I was writing for The Hill. Then my editor went to The Messenger, and I went with him. And then The Messenger just folded up and died. So I said, well, what am I going to do next? I I didn't earn a living from that. I just did it because I was interested. So uh, someone said, try Substack. A lot of people I know write for Substack. So I looked into it, and I said, this looks pretty good. Uh, so I do write for them. I've written a couple of pieces now, and uh, I enjoy it. I'm retired from uh, CNN and from The Messenger and from The Hill and from lots of places. Oh, definitely. Well, um, I'm just so glad to continue to be able to read your column, uh, to, to get your wisdom in between these Kudzuvine visits. Well, um, l- let me ask you uh, quickly about this past week in uh, Michigan. Um, I, I guess there's two different metrics to look at. One was 
um, only about 12 percent of the voters voted uncommitted in the Democratic primary. But that ended up being, I guess, a raw number of around 100,000. What's your take on how big a deal this is? Well, it's a serious uh, issue for President Biden and for the Democrats, because that's a very large number. It's over 100,000 Michigan voters did not support President Biden, who obviously won the primary. He did well. He got over 80 percent of the vote. But 100,000 people to vote for uncommitted delegates when Biden really had no, no opponent, no challenger, was a significant statement. It said that not all Democrats are happy with falling in line behind President Biden. And most of them are unhappy, uh, it appears, from the surveys, because of his support for Israeli policy in the war in Gaza. Uh, there are a lot of Arab Americans in Michigan, in the city of Dearborn and Hamtramck and places like that. And they're very angry at Biden because of his support for Israel in the war in Gaza. So uh, they, they used the opportunity to make a statement against him, even though there was no candidate opposing him on that basis. Yes, I guess uh, we know that uh, Michigan's that one of that handful of like six states that may decide the whole thing. Well, I also had one other question before I pull, uh, turn it over to Catherine and Kathy, and um, that was uh, just kind of a general question about what really motivates the bases of the two parties. I get the sense that Republic, I mean, Democrats are motivated by the dislike of Donald Trump as an individual. But in turn, I kind of think Republicans, even though they'll use Joe Biden as their person they complain about, they really don't like a lot of the Democratic base, people that may be other in their um, vernacular um, than themselves, and so they don't like Democrats in general because they see them as very different people. But in for Democrats, it's more an individual. Do you see any of that dynamic going on? Well, I'll put it this way: uh, the best thing Donald Trump has going for him in this campaign is dislike of Joe Biden as president. Uh, he's a controversial president. Republicans can't stand him. He, they think he's a liberal, which he is on a lot of issues. They don't like Democrats, but they especially don't like liberal Democrats, and they think Biden is a liberal Democrat because on a lot of positions he takes the liberal uh, view. Uh, just like Republicans, the best thing going for Biden is Trump. Uh, Republicans, uh, Democrats can't stand Donald Trump, so a lot of them are going to come out to vote for Biden because they can't stand Trump. That's, what, that's the best issue for each party is the opposing party candidate. Yes. Well, uh, thank you for those responses. I'm going to pass it to Catherine. We'll pass it to Kathy. Um, Catherine? Hey, Bill. Thanks for being on with us again. We really appreciate sure. your wisdom. And congratulations on Substack. I really like Substack. I, have, I uh, follow a few people on Substack, and I, I really enjoy the, the platform. So I'll be looking for you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about polls. About what? You know, this... This New York Times poll that came out this appalling. week was, uh, uh, yeah, appalling. Is that what you said, appalling? The, it, the New York Times. So yeah, it was so confusing. Um, you know, that the, the women and African-American vote was way down below the 2020 uh, re election results. And I'm just wondering, I, I'm, I will be honest up front. 
I'm not crazy about polls anyway, but I know that they do have an impact on voters and on media and on a lot of things. I'm just wondering when we see polls like that, that are really, I think clearly, um, I don't want to say defective, but clearly like, I mean, I just don't think they're realistic. How do we, um, how do we not fight back against them, but how do we, how do we move forward uh, recognizing that there might be some flaws in some of these polling? How do we talk about that? Well, no poll is predictive or authoritative. All they do is tell you what, where things stand right now. This is a poll that was taken probably in the last 10 days or so. They interviewed about 1,000 people around the country, asked them who they now support for president. That may change. I mean, look, we're months before the, before the November election. Uh, so all of that could change very easily. Polls are uh, not at all predictive. They just tell you where things stand right now. And where things stand, according to the New York Times poll, is that President Biden has a lot of critics, and his standing is not very great. It's one of the lower standings of any incumbent president running for re-election in modern history. Why is that true? Well, you can see it in the polls. You can see it, I think, in the New York Times poll. But let me tell you a little story. Um, back in after the, uh, the attacks of 9-11-2001, uh, when um, uh, George Bush was president, uh, he was amazingly popular. He, had, he was tough. He was strong. He stood up to the terrorists. And there was a huge wave of popularity for Bush. He had over 90% popularity. It was a record. He, both he and his father had record high popularity. His father, after the victory in uh, the Gulf War, and George W. Bush after the attacks on 9-11. Well, when we did polling and asked people about why they supported President Bush, including Democrats, the answer was always one word, strong. He was strong. That's what Americans want in a president. They want a president who's strong. And when I've looked at polls about how people feel about President Biden right now, the overwhelming response you get is that he's not strong. He's weak. Americans want a president who's strong and who's tough, and they don't see Biden as that kind of a strong president. Now, that's in part because of his age. Old, to most Americans, means weak. But a lot of Americans are very reluctant to support a leader who they believe is too weak to be a, strong, to be a tough leader. They always want someone who's tough and strong. Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, lots of presidents, most presidents, Harry Truman. Look, when the Democrats used to have a lot of strong, tough presidents. Truman fired MacArthur. Um, Kennedy during the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, Biden hasn't had a chance yet to show his toughness or his strength, but that's what Americans are looking for in a president, and they right now do not see it in Joe Biden. And I think that, you know, I think that's part of Joe Biden's uh, sort of, uh, you know, some might say charm, but obviously it's a flaw, is that I think he he does want to play both sides. You know, he wants to, he wants everyone to be happy. He wants to find some middle ground somewhere, and that can lead people to believe he's not strong, so... 
Yeah, after the the you know a year after 9/11, Democrats thought they would do well in the 2002 midterm elections because in a midterm after a new president is elected and George Bush had only been in office for a couple of years, in the first midterm, the party that's out of power expects to do well. Democrats did not do well in the 2002 midterms. Now it happened that Bill Clinton gave a speech to a Democratic audience here in Washington, where I am right now. And he, in the course of that speech, which I was listening to, Clinton made a statement that I'll always remember. He said, the lesson of this election, the 2002 election, where Democrats did not do as well as they expected, is, and this is a quote, strong and wrong beats weak and right. Strong and wrong beats weak and right. He was speaking to Democrats, and he was speaking as a Democrat. I thought that was a very good piece of political wisdom uh, from uh, Bill Clinton uh, speaking as a Democrat. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we're that we're that shallow, <laughs> isn't it? I feel like it is. Yeah. But um, and I was going to pardon me. I have a list of questions. I just have to pull it up just one second. Um, sorry. Catherine, you will go ahead and let Cassie go ahead and then come back. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not as prepared as I wanted to be. Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Awesome. Thank you. So (laughs) aside from war being good for re-election, I – I want to come back to your comment about uh, Biden being seen as weak. And I just thought it was really interesting on your Substack, as it just so happened as we're talking about this today, uh, that you had talked about how, you know, Trump likes to, to portray himself as a deal maker, right? And I, yes. I think of deal makers as people who compromise, who are willing to come to the table and you know, make decisions together, collaborative, and that's definitely not Trump. And you talk about how the reason why people vote for him is because he's a fighter. And right. in, in, in this day and age where we, uh, both sides of, of the aisle, both you know, Republican and Democratic voters are talking about wanting to bring the country back together and so forth, and meanwhile, Trump voters are openly saying that they want someone who's going to fight. So how do how does that messaging work for the Democrats to be able to try and actually bring people to the table, to try and actually be those deal makers that Trump wants to to you know portray himself as? How can how can we do this to collaborate to move forward? Well, um, fighter is in many ways, the opposite of a dealmaker. Uh, now, uh, people expect the president to be able to get results, and they don't much care wh- how he gets results, by fighting, by making deals, whatever. Uh, if you're a good fighter, then you can make a deal because people are afraid to oppose you. A lot of Democratic presidents in the past have been very, very tough as fighters. Harry Truman fired MacArthur. Franklin Roosevelt said in 1936, at the peak of the depression, of the depth of the depression, I should say, he said, 
that uh, there are those who hate me and I value their hatred. Uh, he was a fighter. Trump is a fighter. One president who really wasn't much of a fighter was Jimmy Carter, and he got turned out of office. And Joe Biden is looking at the same possibility because people don't think he fights very hard. Well, a fighter is something that Americans want in a president. They want an advocate, someone who's going to stand up for what he believes in. In the end, he may have to compromise to get it, but that's part of the game, too. But basically, when they nominate a candidate for president by his own partisans, partisans want a fighter to fight for them. And that's why a lot of Republicans, most Republicans are going to vote for Donald Trump. That makes a lot of sense, unfortunately. Um, but I have one follow-up question, then I'll throw it back to Catherine. So, you know, Putin says that he'd rather have Biden as as president. Do you think that this is a briar patch kind of situation where he's just trying to throw people for a loop to actually vote for Trump because he knows that Trump is more uh, malleable or agreeable when it comes to uh, Putin's influence? Or do you think that he actually thinks that Biden would be better for America? I don't think he thinks Biden would be better for America. I think he thinks Biden would be easier to deal with because Trump is so unpredictable. Trump has said nice things about Putin. Trump values strength and toughness. And he sees Putin as a strong leader and in some ways as a model for American president for himself. Trump values strength in a leader and he supports and praises leaders who are strong and tough, like the leader of Hungary and the leader of Israel and the leader of Russia. He likes Putin, or at least he's been complimentary to Putin. What he likes about Putin is his toughness. Trump likes strongmen as leaders. And that makes a lot of Americans, particularly liberals, very, very nervous. They have the idea of a strong man as a leader, as that being his, his primary characteristic, doesn't sit well with a lot of Democrats and a lot of liberals. Right, because they are more uh, leaning towards uh, authoritarianism uh, in all those countries that you've, you've listed. So, uh, Trump seems to admire authoritarians. <laughs> yes. Well, he he seems to picture himself as one, as a wannabe, you know, and uh, they asked him if he would actually be a dictator, and he said, only on my first day. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't on. know what he meant by that. I can't, I can never figure <laughs> out what he meant by that. What does he plan to do his first day, except he has said, arrest a lot of illegal immigrants, put them in uh, detention camps, and try to deport them as quickly as possible. Well, I suppose that can be dictatorial. Uh, because, you know, you have to, you, there are procedures for dealing with this, but that's the only thing I can imagine he can, he'll, he'll propose doing in his very first day. I don't think it's going to make Warren anything. Uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 I hate to see. So, uh, Catherine, you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. It Thank was, you. It was just one more question. What is Nikki Haley? What do you think the story is with Nikki Haley? What's her... What's her game plan? She has discovered a constituency. Her supporters in the Republican Party are reporters who are, sorry, Republicans who don't want to vote for Donald Trump. They don't like Donald Trump. There are some Republicans out there. They're a minority of the party. that really don't like Donald Trump. Many of them are traditional Republicans. They're, the, the, the characteristic that's most distinctive about them is they're well-educated Republicans. You know, there's something going on in the United States 
that's called the diploma divide. It's new and it really became very serious with Donald Trump. People with college degrees, with four-year college degrees, don't care for Donald Trump, and people without college degrees are his base constituency. Uh, I, I did a piece of research on this. I looked at the 10 states in the country that are the best educated, where you have the largest percentage of people with college degrees. All of them but one voted for Joe Biden in 2020. The only one that didn't was Utah. It's a Mormon state. They're very well educated, but they're also very conservative. Otherwise, all of the southern states, all of the states with a high level of education did not vote for Donald Trump. Only one southern state did. That was Virginia. And you know what's distinctive about Virginia? It's the seventh best educated state in the country. It's a very well educated state. Then I looked at the states at the bottom of the list, the states with the lowest percentage of Americans with college degrees. They all voted for Donald Trump with a few exceptions. The ones that um, did not vote for Donald Trump were New Mexico, which has a lot of Hispanic voters, Nevada, which has a lot of Hispanic voters. Those are states where, which were the exceptions to the rule. Do you know what the worst, the lowest educated state in the United States is? Most people I think will, it's say, will say Mississippi. Mississippi. That's what most people do say, Mississippi or Alabama sometimes. But that's not quite, quite true. Mississippi is the second least educated state in the country. The state with the lowest percentage of college degree holders is West Virginia. Oh, West Virginia. That was my next guess which is 96% white, very few minorities in West Virginia. It's not a southern state. It seceded from Virginia when Virginia joined the Confederacy. West Virginia is a low, it's an Appalachian state. Uh, Appalachians are what, uh, Appalachian white voters are what used to be called unkindly hillbillies. Well, they're not very well educated, but West Virginia is not only low in education, but it was Donald Trump's second best state in 2020. The only state that had a larger percentage of voters for Trump was Wyoming out in the West. But West Virginia is a solidly Trump state, and it's not a very well-educated state. Education and the diploma divide are now a defining characteristic of American politics. Well, that's illuminating. It's very interesting and um, also kind of sad. Uh, so we need to we need to get more the, more of these people educated so they can learn about their government and understand better what's at stake. But you well, didn't say you vote so Democratic. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, I believe that, but I try to try not to say that. I'm going to mm-hmm. pass it back to David. Thanks so much. Sure. Yes. Well, Mr. Snyder, thanks so much for um, coming on tonight. I did know the answer was definitely not Alabama, a place where like Huntsville, where they have the space program. Uh, Tim Cook, the head of Apple's from Alabama, uh, the founder of uh, Wikipedia's from Alabama. So they have a, a long stem history in certain little pockets um, that, of course, West Virginia and Mississippi don't have. But uh, before we leave you, um, tell our listeners where they can find you on, in particular, this new Substack, but if you were on social media, you can share that as well. Well, I just joined them, and uh, I think it's uh, bschneiderdc at substack.com. I'm not certain of that, but I believe that's the way it is. It's B-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R-D-C, 
There are lots of Bill Schneiders in the world, but it's bschneiderdc at substack.com. And then you'll find uh, my columns, which are, uh, which the, the title of my uh, columns is generally Divided We Stand, which is my definition of the state of American politics. Divided We Stand. Yes, so maybe search Divided We Stand. That could be your, your new name for it, maybe. Um, yeah. Get everybody in there. All right. Okay. Well, we thank you so much for coming on and joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Our spirit. Thank you so much. Yes. That was uh, Bill Snyder, and now of Substack, uh, among other um, places you can find him. He is on social media. I'll tell you this. He's uh, one individual. If you follow him on or connect with him on LinkedIn, um, he usually shares his articles through there. Um, so that's a, a good source, even though I think he is on Twitter and some others as well. Um, but we got just a few more minutes uh, before we leave, I did want to mention that uh, Texas poll that we were talking about, and I did actually take the time while we were doing that interview to look up the fundamentals, and the fundamentals are pretty much in line uh, for a poll. It actually shows Democratic voters. I mean, Democrats doing a little bit better with Latino voters than they did last time, and I think that was where some of the movement was. But here is one of the takeaways that I wanted to discuss, and that is – if the border is this major problem that you know a lot of voters see, obviously Republican voters, some voters in the middle, some voters that are Democrats, see, wouldn't it show up in Texas polling and Democrats and Joe Biden be doing worse in Texas than they would be anywhere else since that is the state that has the longest shared border with Mexico? And this poll could be an anomaly, but if this poll proves to be a trend – would it poke holes in that theory, Catherine? Well, uh, I, I think that it might be that the people in Texas, while they um, while they do have a lot of concerns about the border, they also recognize that um, the undocumented workers who come into Texas probably help, like Kathy was saying earlier, with agriculture and other things. So – they may have a better, a, a better, more nuanced understanding of uh, the border than than people in Michigan or Wisconsin or wherever in other places where they are, they appear to be concerned about it, but may not have the same experience. That's just a, I'm just guessing on that, but that's my thought. No, I, I think you're right. They get it. That they they understand what Ron Hetrick told us. So many weeks ago, I just wish – and he's not a partisan individual. He's a labor economist. I wish everybody could hear his talk and thoughts on it, not because it would change them politically in some way. They would just know the facts of this situation. Hey, you can do this, but we won't have any people to work. We won't have any people to pay for Social Security moving forward <laughs> because we're in a demographic decline, particularly non-Latino peoples in America. Um, Kathy um, – you know, if that poll is accurate and it proves to be a about a four-point race in Texas, which is generally more Republican state, a tied race at the Senate level, what does that tell us about, in particular, uh, immigration as an issue? I I don't know if you guys watched any of the videos of the uh, both of the visits to Eagle Pass, but uh, one of the residents from Eagle Pass told Trump very blatantly and specifically, you are not welcome here. 
because I think the majority of the citizens of Texas are empathetic to the human cause. And the the reality of it is that we can't control how many people want to come into America. We cannot control their desire to come into America. We are that, you know, golden, golden shining beacon of light that uh, the Statue of Liberty, you know, says that we are. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we can't control those people. But we, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that what's been happening at the border and the inhumane treatment of these people who are trying to cross um, legally, illegally, whatever, is, is pulling at the heartstrings of the citizens of Texas. I know that Texas is rapidly changing demographics as uh, cities like Austin um, start to gain in popularity, gain in their their actual population itself, population growth. Uh, people are going to be more empathetic to people who are looking for a better life because isn't that what we're all trying to do? We're all trying to find where we belong. We're all trying to find better health care and a better paycheck. And that's really at the base of what these people are trying to do. And I would love to be able to see Texas turn a little bit more periwinkle, like Catherine said, uh, <laughs> much like Georgia is doing too. Um, uh, because, you know, we're looking for progress, not perfection. And every day, if we can get 1% better every single day, then we are, we are moving that needle slowly but effectively. Yes. Well, um, I recommend everybody look at that poll. I think it's probably just because the crosstabs make sense, it's one of the better ones I've seen this cycle. Um, but, but I was looking, and it's, te- it's Texas, University of Texas Tyler, I think 538 did link it with the crosstabs, and so you can look at the PDF document. But it really did show – it showed white voters that Joe Biden's going to run 33% of white voters, which is – not bad for a southern state. It shows a lot of these folks moving in. So white voters are, are, are more uh, moderate. It did show Joe Biden doing better with Latino voters. It did show a little bit of weakness among African Americans. In this poll, Donald Trump was getting 18%. Once again, maybe not a good sample, uh, but you know that number needs to be you know closer to 10 um, for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Um, you know, to, to you know, probably be where he needs to be to possibly either a flip the electoral college part, or for maybe um, Colin Allred to get close enough, assuming he's the nominee uh, to defeat Ted Cruz for the Senate. Well, Kathy, we thank you for coming in. Anything you got to share with our listeners? Any sites or links or anything you've got going on, real quickly before we go. Uh, just wanted to remind our voters that uh, next week is qualifying week for people who are running for office. Also, it's going to be the last week before the presidential primary preference, and just want to make sure that everybody is registered, everybody is out there getting uh, voting and so forth. And if you're anywhere near Emanuel County, I'm going to plug myself and say that I am running for school board district three for Emanuel County. Oh, yes. Good for you. Uh, Maybe we can get you on either while you're in the heat of that campaign or even more exciting after you're uh, win and are sworn in. So good luck to you on that. Um, do want to let I appreciate everybody know it. About next, yes, 
We're going to let everybody know about it. To next week's show, Rachel Bittencoffer is uh, going to be our guest. You know, once again, three or four times she's been on. But she's got a new book, Hit Them Where It Hurts. I'm currently listening to it right now, so it'll be fresh in my mind with questions uh, next week when she comes on. But if you want to do your homework, um, you know, if you get that book and read it or read up about it, um, Dr. Bittencoffer will be our guest next week, and we're excited about that. Until next week, it's good, Zivon. Thanks, Kathy. Good night, y'all. Thank you. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?